Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk, run, and make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Can that be one of our things that we just decide in real time as we record the podcast what the name of the podcast is? Because sure, I just feel like it's happening in a really annoying way. <laughs> what is astonishing you? What is astonishing me? Well, as I've mentioned over the past couple of weeks, we are preparing for a prayer summit this Saturday. And, you know, we are, like many congregations, at uh, a crossroad. Um, we have lost a number of people during this pandemic, and there is, like in a lot of congregations, energy around um, getting back what we had before the pandemic. We kind of want it to feel the way it felt before the pandemic. And you know, I've been saying to the congregation and the elders have been echoing this, is that God is not taking us back, but God is taking us forward into what will be. And we don't know exactly what that is yet. And um, none of us are smart enough to come up with a good idea that will lead us into God's future. And that what we need is a a God idea instead of a good idea, and and so we we just really need to seek God, and so we're having this uh, prayer summit uh, this Saturday, and so last Sunday um, I preached on how to hear God's voice because that's not something that we mainline Christians talk about a lot, and um, in the context of that sermon, I told a story that I haven't thought about in about fifteen years. I was at a conference in Asheville or somewhere near Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, it was put on by this group that is both Presbyterian and charismatic. They seek to blend uh, charismatic practice with reformed theology. And I went alone. I didn't know anyone at this conference except for the teacher, the facilitator, Brad. And so first night, we have a time of worship. Brad teaches. And then we have another time of worship. And in the middle of worship, Brad says, okay, now we're going to practice what we have been learning today. And it's all about spiritual gifts and hearing from God and all that good stuff. And uh, he says, okay, I just want you to look at the people in your row. Everybody looks around. He says, that's your group. So that, that's your group that you're going to get in. And one person is going to be the person who receives ministry. So, of course, I know no one on my row. Uh, this one guy uh, decides that he will volunteer to be the person who receives ministry. Uh, we kind of, he sits in a chair. We all stand up and circle him. I have my hand on his shoulder, kind of standing behind him as we all pray. The music continues. And Brad asks us, you know, to seek the Lord for a word for the person who's receiving ministry. So it goes on and <laughs> incredibly, at least to me at the time, uh, there were folks already passed out on the floor, and you know it looked mm -hmm. like you know a Pentecostal church, and these were primarily white Presbyterians, and which was a new thing for me. Uh, it's a real charismatic service here, and uh, so we're we're in this time of prayer, and then suddenly Brad starts calling out people, "Hey, so and so, what has the Lord spoken to you? So and so, what has the Lord spoken to you?" And at this time, I'm thinking. Please, <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
please do not call my name. Please do not. And as soon as I thought that, you know what happened. I do. Yolando. I mean, I've never heard the story before, <laughs> but I know what happened because I've lived the story before. What mm-hmm. is the Lord saying to you? And I'm like, oh, okay. So I share. So, well, all I have is that I see this picture of the inside of a medieval blacksmith shop. And this blacksmith is just pounding out armor. That's what I see. And I look down at the guy. My hand is on his shoulder. He looks up at me, and his eyes are just wide. They're huge. And he says to me, he says, you're not going to believe this, but my last name is Blacksmith. And I've been going through a really hard time marriage and he lists a number of things job he says i just feel like i've been going through a battle he says i think that's probably the most encouraging thing i've heard in a long time what you just shared so then my eyes were big right so mm-hmm. i i had this theory some experience of the lord speaking I, i've always said yes to yes the holy spirit guides and leads us and the, and the lord speaks to us but i never saw myself as a person who received a word for other people outside of teaching and preaching right mm-hmm. and that experience was so transformative for me um and also need to say that there were very few pastors in the room. Like mm-hmm. Most of the people were not pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say 90% were Presbyterians. And for most of the people in the room, this was not as new <laughs> for them as it was right. for me, right? right. And so um, part of my takeaway was that, oh, this kind of thing is for everybody. Mm-hmm. So back to uh, Sunday morning at Dorada Church. I do my time of preaching about hearing the voice of God. I get to the end. I said, okay, friends, we are going to practice. And uh, you can kind of feel the tension in the room. Some people smile. Some people have this look of, oh, no. Yeah, that's not what the look was, but okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and But I, 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 I move quickly to set them at ease. Look, I'm not going to ask you to share this is between you and the Holy Spirit. This is not a word for anyone else. This is what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And if you don't hear anything right now, know that when you get in your car to go home, you may be brushing your teeth tonight and the Lord speak to you. So I, I try to set people at ease. So we have our time of prayer. Um, the musicians are playing. And then we end the service. Oh, I also say... If you want to share with me after worship, please feel free. I would love to hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of worship, one of the elders came to me and said, hey, I just want to share with you what the, what I felt the Lord said to me. Um, and uh, she pulled out her notebook and she said, the Lord said, um, don't worry or don't be afraid. It was for the church's cleansing. And she said, you know, I think this is about people leaving during the pandemic. And I said to her, I do too. Now, and that's not to say that we think um, the people who left were messing up the church or that, or that we're even happy that they left. Mm-hmm. 
But what we sense now that we have lost a number of people is that there is a, there's a unity, there's a growing unity in the church. The people who are there really want to be there. And uh, there's a, as, as much as we grieve the loss and as much as we battle anxiety about the future, there's also this sense of, okay, something is happening here. It's something very good. And uh, that word affirmed that. And uh, both Robin and I left that uh, time together really encouraged. Yeah, I mean, I there's so much that I want to just like echo and emphasize and underline in what you just shared. Um, and I guess the first thing is it is really interesting how for some of us how hard it is to accept that the work we do and the life we have in Jesus is spiritual mm. and i you know and i think like other people have the opposite problem so it's not to cast stones like i mean the whole thing about an incarnate god is this fusing of the natural and the supernatural right this like um this this indwelling of god in what appears to be ordinary or quote natural or not sacred and you know to borrow from rob bell everything is spiritual everything is everything spiritual. is spiritual and yeah. and we i think who are more formed by sort of a western post quote enlightenment colonial whatever label you want to put on it have sort of this idea that there's a dichotomy of the world it's kind of a a, a hangover from some bit marcian heresies this idea that there's like a a dirty old physical world that is kind of fallen and gross and dirty. And it's, it's just a mess and God really doesn't care about it anymore. It's just garbage. It's gum stuck to the bottom of God's shoe. And like, it's our job to kind of like rise above that and, and like really focus on the, the true world, which is the spiritual world, which is different. And, and from that idea, you know, even if you reject that idea as wrong, we, we kind of continue to have this false um, thought that there are some things in life that are spiritual and other things in life that are not. Um, and I think what we really have is an illusion that some things belong to us and are just in our sphere, and then other things belong to God or in God's sphere, and that we as humans can kind of move back and forth between those two spheres at whatever frequency we want or feel comfortable with, or, you know, and I just, it, it's all, it's all baloney, <laughs> like everything is spiritual, including baloney, like the whole fact of existence is the glory of God, it's turtles all the way down, and so I think, you know, but especially as people who love the church and just sort of the embodied manifestation of what it means to be the people of God and kind of the, the embodied products of faithfulness, like the um, biblical text and the um, just writings and songs and prayers and traditions that humans have 
I think co-created with God or, you know, the, the customs and traditions, like I'm not saying all that stuff is, is bad because it's not. And I think that God is in it. And I also think that we can just get so focused on the sort of human side of it that we, we don't see, um, where the Lord is, or, or we continue trying to sort of seek the holy or really honestly protect ourselves from the holy kind of in almost like some things that we cling to so tightly. I think of like, you know, those cicadas and Katie dids where like it has a skin and then it molts out of the skin. And so the living thing is gone and we're just holding on to the dead husk. I mean, there's just, there's some dead husks in our life together. And then there are some things that I think many things that, you know, the spirit of God is still a pulsing and alive and present in them, but we just don't perceive and we don't want to perceive that actually, um, like her name escapes me right now. Oh, it's making me mad. But the woman who talks about like Annie Dillard, who talks about like, man, if we understood what we were doing when we came into worship every Sunday, we would like strap ourselves in and wear crash helmets because like we are like calling down the holy. And I think just for some of us, just to the awareness of the intimacy and presence and power of God all the time is just, we don't want that awareness. Um, and so we, we, we just find ways to numb it and to distract ourselves from it. And so the idea that like, yeah, for a people of God to go into a room and seek to hear directly from God, that's not woo woo crazy that's obvious. Like, and I think it's so interesting that for us, we sort of are comfortable with this idea that there are like different levels of Christians and you might put different labels on those levels, but like there's the kind of Christians who hear directly from God. And then there's the kinds of Christians who hear directly from the Bible and a person who went to school to learn. And then they hear, you know, and it's an indirect thing. And, you know, and some people think, one kind is a terrible kind and the other kind is a reasonable kind and one kind is a dead kind and one kind of the lion kind. And honestly, like depending on where you're standing, the labels swap. But the reality is for people outside of the church, like yesterday I was sitting with someone who was not a Christian and I was reading a book called by Shane Claiborne, Executing Grace. And so she asked me what I was reading and I'm like, oh, this book about the death penalty and the author is talking about how Christians because of our faith, we, we should understand that the death penalty is evil and, you know, should be abolished. And she's like, isn't that kind of obvious? And I'm like, I mean, should be, right? But, like, for somebody outside of the faith to be that like... is great. Right? I mean, like, of course. Someone's like, I'm not a Christian, but I know that your God was executed by the state. So the idea that Christians should be, like, against the state-sponsored execution seems like a duh obvious to her. But, like, for us inside of the church, we have all kinds of reasons why, like... Maybe not. But again, I think to an outsider to say like, oh, a bunch of people who believe in Jesus would come into the room and pray to hear from God. And we're like, is this okay? Are we allowed to do this? This is pretty dangerous. And an outsider would be like, what else do you do? Like, why are you, you know, so I just think like, it's just worth sort of marveling at what does it mean that we're so deeply uncomfortable with this? And honestly, like how dumb are we? If we're building our whole life around Jesus, but not interested in trying to hear directly from Jesus, then like that just is stupid, right? So, I mean, it's real. Like, well, let me just clarify, like I'm not casting, like I'm talking about myself. Like there are times us. when I just want to put levels of like, 
institutions and authorities sure. and books and traditions between me and God. Because if I listen to directly to God, like God might say something to me and ask me to do something utterly reasonable, which seems just not what I want and not what I feel like I deserve or expect. Well, one of the things I celebrate in this moment, this season, um, where things are disorienting and hard and there's grief and loss is that so many things have been stripped away from us yep. that we are faced with a decision. Will we go back to those layers of institution and mm -hmm. traditions, right? Or will we say, you know what? God has something to say. This might be an opportunity for us to lean into something very powerful, very transformative. Right. Cause, and that's the other thing that I wanted to say about what you just shared, which is just beautiful um, and so faithful. And we should rightly be astonished by that. Because I will say on the other side of the coin, for people who have the great gifting and wisdom of being taught and nurtured to hear from the Lord and to have that as a regular practice, like you can also get to a point where you like expect that and are not astonished by it. Like, of course I hear from God. And then I think that's super dangerous mm -hmm. too, right? Um, Absolutely. Because God is not Google. And to say like, every time I say blah, 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 I'm going to get a response. Like that's not how. Well, I've know. often heard people use the illustration uh, that God is like a television station or radio station sending out a signal. And are you pick, picking up the frequency? And what, what what's helpful in that illustration is this idea that listening, you have to be intentional about listening. Mm -hmm. What I don't like about it is that it's very mechanical. Like this is about relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's not like th this is, well, well, like this is a, a transactional mechanical right. Spidey thing. sense, yes. like extra, yeah. No, this, sometimes God talks and sometimes God doesn't. And so to assume that you are always hearing God, mm, I don't know. Right. And just without an awareness that if you always hear something, you might be hearing yourself. You Correct. might be hearing what you're listening to. But the but the other thing I want to say, just lift up out of what you said, because I think it's so important to just name and ponder, um, is, and, and this is really natural language for me too, language that I use and language that I, um, but you said, you know, we're feeling a lot because we've lost a lot of people during the pandemic. And I think that language of losing people is just really interesting. Um, and we should pay attention to it because, you know, I, again, I, I think it's really natural. And I think in so many ways it's just beautiful because we love the people that we, um, encounter in, in, in church. We, we love the people who are part of this community and we know that it is very faithful to say that one way I worship God is to love the people in God's house, right? And that, you know, Jesus on the night before he, he is glorified on the cross says, you know, I'm giving you one commandment and, you know, love one another as I have loved you. So this, this, this impulse of faith to love the people that we worship the Lord with is just, it's faithful. It's, it's faithful. Um, but I also think that there are just really natural ways where we cannot be critical about that love that we have and to sort of say the purpose of the church is not only 
to be a group of people that we love and stay with our whole lives, right? That's not the point. Mm. Um, and now it, it is, I think, one of the most accessible ways to experience the goodness of God, to come into a community and to love one another and to be loved. And, you know, that one of the ways that the world sees Jesus is look how they love one another, right? So again, I'm not, I'm in favor of communities really loving one another. But, but loving doesn't mean holding on to people. And, you know, just we are called to follow Jesus. And so I think we have to get a better at understanding our life in the church as, as seasonal, not in a sense that we would be church hopping and not in a sense that we would always be looking for the next greatest thing or the, you know, whatever, but also to this idea that like, you know, you didn't lose them because they're not lost, but it is true that the paths have diverged, right? And the thing that God is calling to write a church to in this season, God is not calling them to. And it's not a, a better or a worse thing. It's just a true thing. And certainly we see in scripture all the time that communities, I mean, I guess that's the problem. Like in the, in in this moment in life, the only reason that we can think of leaving a church is if something went wrong or if like somebody failed. And we talk about church splits as like this terrible failure on somebody's part or somebody's wrong. And I think it's just important to sort of normalize and naturalize the idea that like churches are on mission and God has different missions for different congregations and different people have different callings and frankly capacities and they're not better or worse. And you know, I just am really, I have, um, I'm deeply indebted to um, Lisa Coons, our friend who, when we were in the, just at the beginning of, but a really hard place of transformation at the Grove, um, you know, whatever, 12 years ago, she said, you know, one of your problems is you, you just think that everyone is called to what God has for the Grove. And, and not everyone who's in this community right now is called to this next manifestation of the church. And that's not, you know, that's okay. Like just because someone isn't called to this, it doesn't mean they're not called. It doesn't mean that you're more worthy or they're less worthy. It doesn't mean, it just means not everybody has the capacity to serve God in the same way, in the same community, in the same season. And so I just wonder but I just feel like we don't have language except language of loss, right? Mm. And like, I just wish that there was a way, and then we don't even talk about it, right? Because like, it was all like grief and shame and guilt. And so we don't even have a way for people to say goodbye that doesn't feel like an accusation, right? Just to say like, the Lord has been good to me in this place and I was called to this place for a season. And now, you know, whatever. I feel I'm being called in this place or I'm just not equipped for the work that is ahead or this is not the vision that I have for how I'm going to serve God in community. And that's not an accusation. It's just, you know, you know we've you had a number of people, a good number of people leave Dorada church because they were retiring and moving to a mountain house or beach house mm -hmm. And on those occasions, they would say to us months in advance, right. this is what's going to happen. We are making this life transition. And on their last Sunday, we would bring them forward, thank them for their ministry, 
um, within the church and pray for them and send them off. And those were really healthy, holy moments. But I see exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about those times in which, uh, for example, we had someone, well, even before we came back to in-person services, the elders started to announce that um, we felt a call to change the worship culture of the Mm -hmm. church going back. And, And one of our beloved members said, I don't think that's for me. Right. Not in anger. Right. Just this is not so, for me. This is not for me. And said, I'm, I think I'm called to this other congregation. And I'm so not mad at that. That That is right. okay. But we did not have a ritual. We didn't have a, a way to say, like formally, together, as right. a community, to say goodbye. Just to name that and put yes. language around it. Because mm-hmm. I think like... The reality is so many churches, like, we're just trying to hold on to each other at all costs. And so you have people and in a congregation. that becomes more important than the mission. Right. And you have people in a congregation who really just have radically different and 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 divergent and sort of understandings of how to live out the gospel in ways that can't be integrated. And so that's where there's so much conflict in churches because people just really authentically, deeply disagree. And so then... You know, there's all this energy around like, how do I, you know, how do I advance my mission? How do I, you know, stomach theirs? And how, you know, and this is not about, you know, this isn't about political ideology. I mean, it's not about the great sorting of into like-minded people. It's just the reality is like the body of Christ is is plenty is manifold and and there's just beautiful diversity in it. And I just wish we could have more language around sort of saying like, goodbye, which means God be with you, right? And to sort of like people in the church can say, you know what, I'm not called to this, but I can sense that you are, or I can sense that the Lord is leading this congregation in this way. And and it's not for me, which at the Grove, there were like actually a, a significant portion of people who said to me very clearly, I believe that this is the right thing for the Grove but it is not for me. And so I'm not saying that didn't hurt because it did. Like it was, I liked them. Um, and I, and I felt honestly to be really transparent. Like I, like I, I'm using that language very deliberately. I needed them. (laughs) Um, but I, I, I just think the Lord is, I think everything is spiritual. And so if we could like sort of be less reactive to people, discerning that and and more open to the possibility of like this is painful because I do both love and like you and because I do perceive that you are faithfully following Jesus and so if Jesus is leading you to the left then what does it mean about me staying to the right right if we could just expand our consciousness of being able to say like we are all working in the same vineyard even if even if we're doing you know different tasks so I have a very cheesy story um <laughs> I just insert the thing I'm not going to say right here. So um, when we do know someone is leaving mm-hmm. and we have a chance in community to say goodbye, one of the things I do is I quote uh, a song from the 80s. It's it's a Michael W. It's a Michael W. Smith oh, song. I thought you were gonna do like it's so hard to sing. No, about. <laughs> no not voice to men. You standing up there being <laughs> no. like it's so hard. 
No. no I, um, it's even worse where you're going. Um, Every but, summer camp. But there's a well, there, yeah, there's a song that I think in the '80s they played at every, you know, high school graduation, every, you know, maybe Christian prom, um, youth group, or uh, summer they, boohoo they, Christian camp. Yes, yes the they, last night they played it at our graduation. Anyway, okay, uh, Georgia, it's, Alabama, it's <laughs> Tennessee, Tennessee. Thank you very much. Okay, sorry. Um, same, same, same. So, but the words are really great. Um, Is it? it a friend's a friend forever. No, not that one. Oh, man. Uh, it's, um, pray for me. Here is where the road divides. Here oh. is where we realize the sculpting of the Father's great design. Through time, you've been a friend to me, but time is now the enemy. I wish we didn't have to say goodbye, but I know the road God chose for me is not the road he chose for you. So as we chase the dreams we're after, pray for me, and I'll pray for you. Pray that we will keep the common ground. Won't you pray for me and I'll, and I'll pray for you. And I know that love will bring us back around again. Yeah. I mean, that's good theology. Yeah. And I think like, who is it? Paul and Paul and Barnabas? Who had the big split? Paul and Timothy? Uh, well, I John remember. Mark John turned Mark. back yeah. and uh, Barnabas wanted to take Take him and yes. Paul didn't. And, but yeah, right. I mean, On I do think journey, yes. it's such a great example of like, look, we can we can have graduations or we can have divorces, which is a which is a Rob Bell insight to say like there are times when the Lord leads us on different paths from people who we really love and really enjoy and really like and really honor, and we can fight it and fight to stay together, and and, and then what that means is eventually we end up in a divorce or we can just accept that like we've graduated from this season that we've had together and that was always what was supposed to happen and it is sad and we can name the sadness and also just see that the reality is we there is a larger story so that we have hope that these connections that we have are they matter and they are maintained and we're not separated from one another for forever. But I just, yeah, I do think it's really interesting and I wish we could pay attention to why we use that language of lost yeah. and, and what we can replace it with. And, and, you know, another thing that Lisa Coons taught me is that, you know, when people join the church, you should say to them when they join the church and my elders get mad when I do this, but I, I try to always do it is to say like, Hey, today is the beginning of something really beautiful and it will end. <laughs> and please, like when it's ending, like, please let's have a moment together. Just like we had a moment at the beginning. Let's, let's, good. let's talk yeah. to each other. And it could be a painful ending. It could be whatever. Like we can make this, the ending that is coming in the context of God's love and our faith in God in the way that we're making the beginning in the context of love and faith in God. And it's just important at the beginning to realize there's going to be an ending and that's okay. Yes. Cause so. the reality is we are all temporary. Mm -hmm. And we are all in relationship with one another for a season. And there are other good things on the other side of this season. So, so what's astonishing you? Um, so this week was so beautiful on Sunday after worship. Um, our youth leader, um, her name is Octavia and she months ago came and said, um, that she had this vision for, um, an, a ministry where the youth would put on a carnival 
for the children in the neighborhood. And I'm frankly like she was describing this to me and, and I was listening and just like listening was tired and listening didn't understand. Like I understood that it was faithful. I understand that it was good, but I didn't really understand how it could work and like how all the pieces would come together. And um, I do feel like I am slowly, um, embarrassingly slowly learning how to be a servant leader. And so, I mean, I did have enough wisdom to just realize like, hey, do I, do I trust this person like a thousand percent? Do I believe that she's called to this ministry area, a, a trillion percent. Um, do I believe that she's discerning this with the Lord and that she is capable and that you're know, like, uh, like a hundred percent. And so to just sort of all these weeks when we've been checking in and to listen and to say like, how can I support you? But also just really being aware that this is her ministry and not mine. And like, what does it look like? when something like just really huge and beautiful and spectacular is happening in the context of our community. And like, I am just nowhere near the center of it as the pastor. So first of all, it feels fantastic. (laughs) It's like amazing. And it was just, I like, I, I get deeper joy out of seeing the Lord work out the mission and culture of the Grove through someone other than me, than through me, right? Like, it's just such a place of encouragement to be like, oh, oh, this is your, this is of the Lord and not of me. So like, it's just like, just, I mean, it was just pure joy. And, and all week to just sort of have this sense of like, this, this huge, beautiful, important, like spirit, filled thing is going to happen and like I'm not carrying any water for it not that you know and not in an ugly like I'm not helping but just like this is not my thing and and just to see that happen I mean it was so it was so joy and it was so and like and I was just so proud of myself (laughs) for get like for getting for just knowing that I it wasn't for me and right and for just like not being tricked into over functioning and not being tricked into feeling like I needed to control what it looked like or what it you know or that I needed to sort of I mean just like I just think that's where my ego weakness can be. And just to be able to say like, no, I 100% trust this person. I 100% trust the Lord. Whatever happens, I know the Lord will use it for good in our community and in her life. And, and it was just, I think such an um, astonishing manifestation of his, you know, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. And I think for pastors, like we get sucked so often into this thinking that if we're not almost dying, we're not being faithful, right? Like if we can take a nap on a Sunday afternoon, we're not working hard enough. We don't care enough. We don't like, if I'm not like neglecting my children and ignoring my spouse, then I'm not serious enough about, you know, and it's just so beautiful to see this manifestation of like, I, 
I am not a snail and the church is not something I'm carrying on my back. Like this is the Lord's, this is all spiritual. And so I just am like, so astonished, not at how beautiful and wonderful and amazing it was because that's exactly what I expect looking at who is leading and who she is and how her brilliance and her strength and her commitment, like it's like I'm 0% surprised that it was a smash hit. But as intimately acquainted as I am with my own weakness and my, my own sort of places of insecurity and ego needs and whatever, like I am just so grateful as we talk in the context of like how to listen to the Lord of like really perceiving like you are not like step back <laughs> like and when you are not needed like receive that and and go function in another place and stay in your lane and I just am astonished that the Holy Spirit wrestled my insecure like people pleasing anxious little heart into a place of I mean, really authentic calm. Like I really was not pretending to be calm. Like I really was like, oh, this is whatever. And again, like I just want to clarify, this is about me knowing my weakness and me knowing that like 10 years ago, five years ago, if I would have felt, I don't know. Like, but anyway, so I just, it was so beautiful and I am so astonished and grateful to perceive this little inch step forward of spiritual growth on my part that I think is because that's what I that's the dream for me as a pastor to be um, serving a community where people discover their own um, just beautiful ways to glorify the Lord and it's just like to watch people like come into themselves and come into a ministry that is mediated between them and the Holy Spirit. And you are just kind of like, have this little like auxiliary, you know, two of the side role and to be able to just authentically delight in that. Like, it's just such a, that's what it should be. Right. And so it was just really, I, I mean, and I see it a lot in, in ways that it grows, but especially it's hard because, you know, we, we haven't been doing That was just so visible. Right. And so it's just so cool to see such a visible manifestation yeah just before you said um i'm not a snail and i don't carry the ministry the church on my back i wrote in my notes um the lie of the enemy Mm -hmm. is that the church is on the pastor's shoulder Mm -hmm. right and that we have to carry it and uh you can't take a vacation without worrying about the church well well can the church even survive if i take a week off yeah yeah i mean it is it's just such a um particularly poisonous and effective dart because we're trying to be relevant in the eyes of the world. And we feel like the one way to be relevant is to say like, I'm indispensable and to be able to say like, no, I do have time. I have time to rest. I am not stressed. I like, and that when I'm stressed, that's a sign that there's something spiritually wrong with me. Not that I'm a superhero, right? Like not to take that kind of perverse pride into a self-selected public martyrdom uh, you know, it's just not, nobody wants that. Right. So, um, and no one's asked us to do that. Like, so anyway, so it was just a really beautiful thing. And she is amazing. And the people that the Lord leads to this community just continue to 
um, just, I just am so honored to be called to co-create this thing with them and the Lord. And I just am so on, like, you know, I look around and I'm like, I mean, it's not about this, but I just can't believe I get to sit at these tables. Yeah, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus when he says to his disciples, make my joy complete. Yeah. Right. So we there there is a certain joy in doing this work. I mean, just apart from the people just preparing sermons and, right. and all the so things much we do. Joy. But then there's just this higher level of joy when you see people walking in their calling and yeah. just doing the stuff. It's like mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. This is yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, so that was what was delighting me and astonishing me, and I'm giving thanks to God for it this week. Awesome. So what are you thinking about? Okay, well, I'll tell you what I'm thinking about, because I know what you're thinking about, and I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, so last week, I I finished reading, I ordered and um, just inhaled this new book by um, Andre Henry called All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, um, uh. and it just was so good um, and so valuable. And so hard. Um, Would it make you feel some kind of way if you saw me reading that book? Make you feel some <laughs> Make you feel some kind of like way. Like you were considering about not <laughs> yeah. keeping me? No, I mean, no. I'm only kidding. I'm I, only kidding. I, um, I, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot and that I think we should all think about is, you know, how the gospel has been corrupted and perverted by the powers and principalities of this world, right? And so, you know... He is um, an activist and a musician um, and a black man very much prophetically called, he's, he's a prophet, called to tell the truth to America, he's American, about the injustice and um, brutality inflicted against um black Americans and people of color and just the just ugliness to strip away the mask and reveal the ugliness and demonic nature of white supremacy. And, you know, he, he is, I mean, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about this. I don't want to try to unpack his whole book cause that would be dumb, but he, you know, the context is he is a, he is a Jamaican born man who immigrated with his parents to the United States when he was very young, when he grew up in um, in Georgia near Stone Mountain, um, in the context of relevant to us a multi ethnic monocultural evangelical church, and the culture was white evangelicalism, and so. Um, you know, he, he met the Lord in the context of this community, which was full of the Holy Spirit, um, and also full of white supremacy. And these things were just really intermingled in ways that he did not have the capacity to see until years later, partly because as a, as an immigrant to America, he didn't have the generational history of what it means to be a black American. And partly because, you know, his whole introduction to the faith was in the context of the closed loop of this community where he experienced lots of, lots of love and lots of kindness and lots of grace from lots of white people. And also then 
as he continued on to study theology and to just become aware of what it is like to live in a black body in the United States and, you know, living in New York and, you know, being stopped and frisked all the time, you know, continually, and then trying to tell the truth about his life as a black man to these communities and second families who had nurtured him and have these white Christians say to his face, like, that's not true. That's not happening. You're being divisive. You're too angry. You've left the gospel. And, you know, he's doing these theology degrees and like having, as apropos to our earlier conversations, having these visions from the Lord of like, these sign acts that are completely analogous to Isaiah and Ezekiel about, you know, doing these like physical manifestations of his body to call the community to repentance and judgment. And they're amazing to read about them. So you just look at him and like anyone who takes scripture seriously has got to recognize what's happening. But from within the context of the Christian community, he's being told like, you have betrayed the gospel and you have left Jesus because Jesus doesn't care about race and Jesus doesn't care about justice in this world. And all that matters is the gospel. If you and go the, to heaven when you die. Right. And the gospel is this particular way of understanding the sayings of Jesus that is self-referential to the way. I mean, like it's just... And as a white person reading it, it's just so sad because, you know, you just feel his pain. You see the depth of the denial. Um, you see these relationships that, you know, he has to sever. Um, and also, you know, you see him really consciously choose to no longer worship Jesus because He's told explicitly by these people, you know, Jesus is white and Jesus is is wants America to be the way that it is. And Jesus doesn't have a problem with it. And Jesus, you know, so he's just like, I can't, you know, I can't. So he he he's really left spirituality altogether, if I'm understanding his book correctly, but but also not. I mean, but he just anyway, it's it's really um you know, I wanted to read it as a white person because I just think it's really important as a white person to continually be taking a posture of curiosity and listening and trying to learn, like, what does it look like to be a friend and to not assume that you already know? And as a white person, to read books written by people who don't have to edit their voices um, and just to learn like he's already experienced all of that pain. And so to say like, all right, at least I can learn from it and make sure I try to make sure that I'm not repeating behaviors that would be so harmful to people who are in my sphere of influence. Um, and to sit with all the ways that it makes me really uncomfortable. Um, and just, and then just to learn like a person who can really, and I really believe this, that while on the one hand, white people and white Christians in particular, I do think that it is our holy calling to dismantle and call out and renounce white supremacy, right? Like that's that, you know, this is a system we created. So it's our responsibility to um, tear it apart. And also I think that as white people, it makes sense to say, well, the last culture that sort of we designed 
was outside of the will of God. Like we need to like listen to people who have experienced the consequences of the sin of our structures and like let some of those people imagine what a different kind of future could look like. So I do think it's our job to sort of follow when it comes to the work of reimagining and rebuilding and redesigning and just anyway. And so I also just want to learn like, well, what does someone who has experienced life um, in all of these white supremacist institutions, like what, what does that person want know about how you um, respond strategically? And one thing that I think is really interesting and that I learned so much is he's just talking about, so he's committed to nonviolence 100% and is saying, you know, you use the language of like waging war on these systems not because you are going to do violence to anyone in any way, but to say like, it's naive to think that a new way is coming through passivity. Like it's naive to think that a new world can come just by us passively not doing things that are wrong. We need to actively, intentionally and strategically plan and campaign for another way. And so I I think that is really a helpful shift to make because I think, you know, I grew up in, in really foundational senses, understanding my faith, I mean, as like, well, these are the things you don't do. And then everything else is just kind of Adiaphron, like it's all, you know, and to say like, it's not just about, okay, well, we're not going to do bad things because we know Jesus. It's about, well, what good are we going to do in the world? Like, how do we wage peace with as much energy and commitment and sacrifice as people are led by the enemy to wage war, right? And so... I think, uh, anyway, it just, it was really good. I really think people should, he's a, he's a great writer and it's full of stories. So it's a really, I mean, in one way, it's a really emotionally hard read, but it, it's an easy read in the sense that it's very engaging. Like you won't be able to put it down. And I really highly recommend it to, to anyone. And it's really, it's not written for white people, but I recommend it for anyone, but especially white people who are like, well, what, what does it look like for me to show up? Um, in a way that brings life and what does it look like for me to unlearn things that I might not be conscious of and you know because one of the things that he says and we were saying this on the run earlier and it's just true and I see a lot of people saying this um, is that like I think sometimes as white people who really are authentically committed to wanting to be the beloved community and wanting to not do harm and we really want to show up um, but you know, well-meaning white people showing up can cause a lot of harm because we just are conditioned to always think that we know the answers and always think that we have something to say and always think that we know the way. And, and what he says, and I've heard in other places is that like, you know, it's exhausting to be around white liberal self-proclaimed allies because they think that they can do whatever they want to do because they, know that racism is wrong. And so up to and including, you know, using racial slurs and like 
touching people's hair and just like doing all kinds of stuff and kind of in these aggressive ways of saying like, well, I can do this because I I belong. And it's just like... And the, in the end, that only reinforces white supremacy because it says um, even though... I am a self-proclaimed ally. I still see myself in many ways as superior to you. So I'm going to lead. I'm going to be first. N- now, I I do think we ought to tear down some structures, but when the dust settles, I will be your ally, but still be socially in many other ways superior to you. Like I'm going to say the N word because yeah, I can. Because I can. Or I'm going to reach out and, you know, touch you in ways that you don't want, but I'm going to say like, no, I can do this because I mean, it's still just, and I just like, you read it and you want to be like, that's not, I mean, emotionally, you just want to be like, that can't, ha-. like people don't do that. And you're like, but they do. And so, and I, you know, but whatever, like, I just want to recognize that again, everything is spiritual. So this is a spiritual battle. And so there are just ways that we are not fully healed yeah, and that we can still do great harm. Yeah, because it's, it's one thing, and I'm not knocking it, but it's, it's one level to, as you say, um, refrain from doing bad things. But when you start actively doing good, planting good, that's where the battle happens uh, because I think that's where the place where there is the pushback affirmative action oh well now you're giving these people a place of superiority it's it's when you get to that place of doing good that you get i think the most pushback i remember when maybe i've told this story before uh when i was a, a seminarian at a louisville seminary and um, was protesting the um, lack of African-American professors and a number of things on campus. Uh, When it was time to graduate, I made an appointment with the dean of students and said, hey, um, you owe me two degrees because I followed everything the curriculum said and I spent additional time in the library uh, researching and writing and studying for things for my own community. And I've, I've done basically double the work and you should really give me two degrees. And I, I, I knew, you know, that probably wasn't going to happen, but I was serious. I was like, if, if you chose to give me two degrees, I, I would say, yes, I have earned it. Uh, and of course they did not, but I, I needed to put that out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, a hundred percent. And I think that's not something that like when you're white, you don't think of things as being centered about around whiteness, you just think like, well, this is what is, right? Like, this is just what it is. It just so happens that all the authors I read are white. Just like you think it just so happens that all the authors I read are men, because these are just the ones that are worth reading. And you don't think about, well, who decided what gets read and who decided who has worth and who decide, you know, so I I think, um, yeah, so it's, it's amazing. And he, he also writes a lot about hope in ways that I think are really are really helpful and writing about how, you know, the hope and I this is sort of my notes on his words, so this is or his thoughts, but in my word, but like the hope we need is not a hope that comes from burying our heads in the sand, which is sort of the pushback he got from the white evangelical church. Mm-hmm. It's just like pleasantries, pleasantries, only put you know, let's just not, you know. Um, it comes from people who are paying attention in the world. Like that that real hope comes from people who see what's actually happened and grieve it and care. And then he talks about how he did a lot of work, that second degree work of 
tracking freedom struggles around the world and learning from like how did change come in different places and discovering that like it actually only takes a really small amount of people who are actively committed to a cause to affect change and then a larger amount of people who are sort of just passively in agreement um, and he's saying like we have to understand that the only thing that's ever made change in the world is ordinary people who win against injustice because they tell the truth and because they wage peace right so like it's a it is it is divisive and it is disruptive because you're trying to lift up something that has a veneer of respectability and niceness and saying like this is not what it looks like and this is not what you've been taught and this society is not what it tells you that it is and if you're going to tell the truth that is going to be divisive and we have to unlearn this idea that that is ugly or mean or anti i mean like how did we ever get the idea that that's contrary to the gospel if you read the bible this is what god does over and over and over again is to say you are not who you think you are israel and like i have a problem with you and that's deeply deeply faithful um but then the hope that comes from knowing that you know if you think there's no if you think there's no change that's possible, then you just resign yourself and say like, well, I'm going to get mine while I can. But when you know that like, actually the earth is the Lord's and God is doing this work. And so I can be a part of it if I choose that, you know, that's really, really important. Um, and he's calling people to really work on two levels at the same time. There are those who are very comfortable with, uh, working on, um, uh, changing systems and structures, but do not apply those same things to their own lives and their own thinking, right? And then there are others who are very comfortable with applying anti-racism to their own lives, but then want nothing to do with social action. Yep. And so faithfulness says, you really got to do both. I mean, he talks about what's true is that people in his white evangelical, culturally white evangelical church, they wanted to be in relationship with him, right? Like Absolutely. they wanted mm -hmm. to have a black friend. They wanted to have a black son. They wanted to be his godparents. What they, they wanted the relationship. What they didn't want was to, how that relationship forced them to know things about the world that they didn't want to know. And so, you know, he tells a story, like it's just so sad about like trying to be honest with these like deep, deep friends and family about like, this is what it's like for me in the world and having just that aggressively rejected and really, you know, but then later on, some of those people coming back to him saying like, oh, I got involved with this organization that happened to be led by a white person. And now I see that some of what you were saying is true. Or I watched this movie that starred Matthew McConaughey and it turns out that you were lying. He's like, do you get like how painful it is to me that I'm your brother, you call me a son and I come and tell you this is my experience in the world and you say, that's not true. But then when a white person says this is happening in the world, you go, oh, I guess Andre wasn't full of you know, I mean, like, just like even yeah. in your coming to awareness, you're these deep wounds because you can't see how you trust the voices of white people more than you trust the voices of black people. And you refuse to see that because of what it says about you. And even 
when it comes to that coming to awareness, you're seeking an affirmation. You're seeking a pat on the Correct. back. Like, like, thank you for, you know, you want to say like, oh, now I, before I didn't believe you, but now I believe you. So, you know, aren't, aren't you proud of me? Mm-hmm. Instead of like, no, I'm wounded by you because you can't say that you love me. And also you don't care if I daily get stopped and humiliated on the streets. You can't, those things don't go together. Like James, you can't say to someone, yes. be warm and well fed. Like that's crap. So anyway, so it's a very good book and everyone should read it, especially if you care about healthy and holy multi-ethnic communities. What are you thinking about? You know what I'm thinking about. It's what everyone is thinking about around the world. And I can't believe you don't want to talk about it, but we're going to talk about it. And that is the Oscars and um, the slap. And, you know, I am not into celebrity culture. Um, I did not watch the Oscars. I don't watch the Oscars. Um, I have seen clips of what happened and my initial reaction was that it was a gross display of toxic masculinity. I mean, I was really just very sick and angry. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, as, as I thought about the, uh, about the Oscars and what happened is that our culture is not, um, individualistic like the larger society, right? There, there's a lot of we in, in black culture. And so when, um, Someone wins a major award, that's us. When uh, Barack Obama becomes president, that's us, right? And so when someone does something really stupid and foolish, that's us. And it matters. And we, we have to deal with it. We have to hold that person accountable. We cannot ignore it. We cannot say, oh, that person simply made a mistake. Um, if we're going to embrace the, the good, we, we've got to um, take hard looks at the ugly and the wrong. And so I, well, one, so incredibly hypocritical. First, he laughs at the joke, sees his wife's reaction, and then gets up. Not only that, but for several years now, this couple, this family, has put the details of their lives out in a way, but we, we don't want to know all the details, and yet they, they're just very transparent about their lives, and this one joke is now out of line, so no, I'm not lying. But aside from Will Smith, what I really want to talk about is Chris Rock's reaction. I was so incredibly impressed by how he handled the situation that he had been so, well, you have this craft called comedy and the craft, you shape the craft, but the craft also shapes you. And he's been so formed by the craft of comedy that in a moment like that, his first reaction was to make a joke. And what I thought after seeing the video 
I asked the question, what, what if we were so formed by Christ that when moments came that were ugly, um, we could, we would respond uh, in the way of Jesus and not in um, <laughs> ways of the flesh. That, that's really my takeaway from uh, um, that horrible moment. I really want to highlight um, Chris Rock's response. So that, that's all I want to say. I know you don't want to talk about it. You've got, you've got this look on your face like, mm, I don't know if I want to well, say anything. I think what I want to talk about is why I don't want to talk about it. Mm. Um, so I just think that we are so um, formed and in some ways like invisibly bound to culture and customs and traditions of the past when white supremacy was explicitly and legally the the structure of of power um and just so much harm has been done to um the bodies and souls and spirits of black people and people of color and the souls of white people. It just, I feel really uncomfortable. Well, um, I think this is less about white supremacy and more about patriarchy. I think this is about um, men not understanding how to be men. Well, I mean, I think it's just all one big toxic soup, well, okay. right? right? I mean, I, I, I definitely, um, I now, just. I'm not saying that white supremacy doesn't play into it because I don't know if he would have done the same thing if it had been a white comedian. Right. Well, I mean, I think that that is, I mean, I guess I just, what I'm uncomfortable with is the number of white people who are comfortable sort of saying like, I well, Will Smith, going. blah, 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 yes. blah, blah. And like, you know, Will Smith, you, you know, some people have really always liked Will Smith and seen him as a, a good, a good black guy, the <laughs> nice black guy. And like the, the affable, non-threatening, non-threatening. Right. Yes. And so I think for, and I think that also played into his calculation, like, okay, I'm going to show that I am whatever. I just am aware of how white people see the bodies of black men implicitly as threats. And I'm aware of how comfortable white people feel in passing judgment about black people. I'm aware of, I think, how differently people would have responded to the same event if it had taken place between two white actors I, I just, and I also just like uh, to be totally transparent. There are just people, friends and, and also, uh, you know, authors and activists who, whose opinion and perspective I respect, who have said, you know, it's really unhelpful for white people to enter into this space and pass judgment because to your point, it's there, there is a collective sense of identity that people of color have been forced to have because of the ways that white people have said, you're not one of us and you don't belong to quote 
quote, real society, whatever. So I just, I mean, I think it's helpful sometimes to practice and say like, do I, did I read a lot about it? Yes. Am I, to my shame, like titillated? I mean, you know, like there's just a sense of like every middle school person being like, fight, fight, you know, whatever. And I'm not like that doesn't, you know, I'm not proud of that. Um, and are there parts of the story that I feel like, particularly as a woman, I can identify with? Sure. Um, and I just, I hear people saying like, hey, this isn't a super helpful place for white people to be differentiating between who's the quote good black man and who's the quote bad black man like that's yeah I get it like that's not that's not a helpful thing and I do think you know if say yeah so I mean if this honestly like if this had happened between two white men I probably would say like well here's what I think about blah 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 but but you know it didn't and I think you know part of what I read um, is a factor is people in the black community having to grapple with, you know, what does it mean that this happened in the white gaze and what does it mean with how this reinforces some of the prejudices that people have, I mean, you know, just all, all kinds of, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a really, um, and so I just, um, it's it's to quote John Legend, it's a no comment kind of <laughs> night. And I think like it's important to say like I have an opinion about literally everything and I am learning that there are some places where my opinion doesn't have to be centered, right? Like there are some places where I can just say like I just don't really know enough to understand all of the nuances and all of the ways that my well-intentioned words might cause harm. And again, like no one is censoring me, but I just want to have a bit of, you know, awareness of all of the baggage that I carry, particularly as a white woman, when so much of the harm that has been done to black men has been done because of a perceived threat to white women, right? Like I just don't, I'm just really aware of that. And I don't need to have my opinion entered into this space. So I am saying that it doesn't matter what I think, but it does matter what you think. So I'm not going to say whether I agree or disagree. You're not going to say, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'll just end by saying, um, I think we have some, this gives us an opportunity to really examine some things about the culture. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a story out of Miami, Florida about spring breakers. And I think the mayor of Miami Beach has either shut it down or um, there's a, a, like a really strict curfew um, because of just the the chaos of spring breakers. And um, there have been a number of African-Americans who live in the area who initially said, hey, um, there's a lot of anti-black racism against these spring, spring breakers. They're just kids. They're just doing what all kids do, um, lay off. 
And now those same voices are saying, we have a problem. Our young people, some of our young people, some of these spring breakers, many of these spring breakers who are African-American need to be reined in. We need to, um, we, we just have an issue here uh, that yes, there is anti-black racism, but also something happening with youth that we need to address. And I think this um, situation at the Oscars is, is something similar that, yeah, there, there, there's some stuff in the culture um, some knots that we need to untie, some things we need to examine when it comes to masculinity. Well, I mean, I think without commenting specifically about that, that, I mean, obviously I think that we have so much toxic gendered roles for men and women in our culture. And it is um, literally killing our children. And I look at the way that, you know, right now in Texas, you have the, um, you have civil authorities saying that if parents have a child who is transgendered and they get medical care for their child, C CPS, Child Protective Services will come in and remove them from custody. And I just think like, what a, what a horrific thing for a parent to say, I have a child who is struggling to figure out who they are and struggling to navigate all of these gendered roles and, and if like, where's the line? So if, if you're saying like, well, my doctor says that, you know, this hormone suppressant therapy is not, a, is okay, but you're telling me I can't do that. So then does that mean that in order to be a good parent, the state will say, well, your daughter needs to have long hair and your son can't paint his name. I mean, like we just have all of these um, really toxic expectations about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what it looks like to love one another and show up for one another. And I think like, that's just, just all of these, all of these expectations are forming us all the time, lots of times when we're not aware of them. So we just think, you know, everybody laughing or not everybody, but lots of people laughing about um, Judge Jackson when she was asked, what is what is a woman? And she said, I can't answer that question because I'm not a biologist. And people with a certain understanding of gender roles saying like, well, that's the most ridiculous thing in the entire world. And I'm like, actually, it's not ridiculous at all. I mean, the reality is genetically, there are a lot, there's a lot of different ways that those two chromosomes or a third chromosome can manifest itself in nature, which means it's not as clear as XX or XY. So, I mean, like, it's just an ignorant statement to say everybody knows what a woman is. You can only say that from a great distance and a great deal of unexamined self directed superiority, right? And so to say like, actually the world is a lot more complicated than we want to believe that it is. And, and what does it look like um, to both seek good and manifest a more excellent way without doing additional harm to vulnerable people? Because that's um, what I, I, I think we don't, 
that's what I think a lot of white people aren't willing to do when they just want to say like, well, person A in that scenario is a thug and not the person I thought without realizing that the way you see that scenario and all of the psychological trauma that informed that reaction you're very culpable in that. And the ones who came before you are really culpable in that. But you don't you don't want to look at the depth of the fallenness of creation. You just want to sit behind a desk in your robe and say, I I pass judgment on you and you're no longer worth like that's um but so do I think that we're being crushed by these gender roles that people often paste God's name on, but have nothing to do with the witness of scripture, which is male and female. I created them in my image. And so God in whose image we are created is male and female, whatever that means. It means that this sort of platonic division and ranking that we're so comfortable with and that we're all reacting to is unholy. Yeah. So, um, and I'm sad that there were, um, you know, it's it's beautiful that that film about a deaf family won. I mean, I just think like our preoccupation with that moment says way more about us than it does about anybody who was involved in that moment. Um, because that's what we want to do. We just want to put people on pedestals and then throw them off again in ways that make us feel good about ourselves. So what are you preaching? <laughs> I would just like to say I feel very suckered. <laughs> I, um, I I don't know. I'm I preaching about the treasures. About it. I know, it's so rude. <laughs> the treasures hidden in grief and loss. And I'm not prepared to talk about anything else about that because I haven't studied. And I it's only Tuesday. It's what only are you, Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. What are you preaching? Hey, about? guess what? I'm not preaching this week. Oh, who's preaching for you? Um, we have this wonderful woman in our um, church family. She recently, I mean, recently as in the past two weeks, got a position uh, here in the city as a hospital chaplain. We're so happy for her. Uh, Miss Cece is preaching um, for me this Sunday, Miss Cece Copeland. Um, She is wonderful and um, folks at Dorada Church really love her preaching because it's so um, clear and practical, and she's not trying to impress anyone. And um, once when she was preaching, her the notes of her pages were out of order, and she just let everyone know, she said, well, hold on, my pages are out of order. And um, she made a comment, something like, uh, I'm going to get these in order, and ain't, nobody, ain't nobody's mad but the devil. And and <laughs> so just beautiful. that being That's so beautiful. Yeah, she's like not flustered. She's like it is what it is. Because I'm not up here trying to look cool. Yes, and that endeared her yeah. to the congregation in yeah. a way that professional old me, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to be somebody, right? Um, I'm I might get really flustered in in that moment. You know, that's such a great example of like one of the principles we have been looking at is how to lead out of vulnerability and weakness. And in that moment, instead of being like, 
okay, I'm going to move on and just hope nobody notices it. And I might even sacrifice the message that I'm trying to give, but because I'm so desperate to hide the fact that I made a silly, simple, stupid looking mistake and like having the deep, authentic anchoring in Christ of being able to say like, oh, my pages are out of order. I'm going to stop the flow so that I can write myself because it doesn't matter what matters is Jesus. And so if I fix this, I can honor Jesus better. And I also, in revealing this, can say to people, hey, humans, like, look at us all being human and God being God in and in spite of it. And yeah. it's good for my soul and for the soul of the congregation for me to sit on the front pew and have this person that we've known for a while to be just another sister in the pew now come forward to preach. It's just um, another illustration of the priesthood of all believers. Right. And, uh, it's right. Just wonderful. Right. Because there's no thing, no such thing as just another sister or brother in the pews. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. That's cool. Well, too long. Didn't read. Sorry, we're still talking. Glad you're still listening if you are, which maybe you're not. Um, which that's really Schrodinger's cat meta of it right now. If you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derida Presbyterian Church, you should go to the website, which is deridapres.org, spelled D-E-R-I-T-A. And you can go to their podcast, which is on the Podbean website, and you can go to their YouTube channel and watch messages. And you should, because the Lord is good and works mighty things through this community. And if you want to know more about God's church at The Grove, you could go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You could go to our YouTube channel, which is The Grove Charlotte. You could go to our podcast, which is The (laughs) Grove Charlotte on iTunes or wherever you go. I don't know. Look for the tree. Um, We really are glad that you're listening, and we will definitely talk to you next week. 